really remarkable, the energy field that is generated by your practice and you perhaps don't feel it quite so much when you're swimming in it all day long but for those of us who are in in the mode of a little bit more coming in and out of it it's really it's amazing the the quiet in this hall the sense of peacefulness and I know it doesn't always feel like that for us as individuals internally but uh, what you're collectively doing is really remarkable and it feels like a privilege to to walk into also a bit uh, of a responsibility a privilege or to to actually drop noise into it (laughs) to uh, speak words into it so on this cold November evening at the end of this wonderfully sunny day. I thought what I would talk about this my theme or topic tonight is the topic of fire. (laughs) And as you know we've been referencing a lot particular teachings of the Buddha, the Satipatthana Sutta, the teachings on the foundations of mindfulness which particularly in the Burmese tradition is like the in, in, in some schools is viewed as the most important sutta in terms of directing our practice. But then we've also talked about the Four Noble Truths and the Dhammachaka Sutta that sets those out. And in the tradition that I was raised in, there are three teachings that are really viewed as the cardinal suttas, and they correspond to what are traditionally the, the first, held to be the first three teachings that the Buddha gave. So there's the the setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma, the Dhamma Chaka Sutta spelling out the Four Noble Truths. And when they listened to that, the first of the Buddha's disciples uh, attained the Dhamma eye, became a stream enterer. And then the discourse on the characteristics of not-self, those same first five bhikkhus were all fully enlightened on the spot when they heard it. And the third one... <laughs> is the fire sermon. And that one was listened to by a thousand bhikkhus who were all enlightened on the spot. So your odds tonight are pretty high. (laughs) And I want to talk about this sutta just because it's one that I, I love and I think it's really useful. But when I talk about it, just to remember that all these teachings are skillful means you know they're not statements of an absolute truth or some ontological truth they're ways of seeing or understanding our experience that are um, can be onward leading and uh, so to reserve judgment and just take what's helpful from from this so as I said this was delivered to uh, allegedly an audience of a thousand fairly newly ordained bhikkhus, a a thousand just means a big number I think and they'd been converted by the Buddha from a a sect of um, fire worshipping ascetics matted hair ascetics and their practice was worshipping fire and fire was divine fire was held to be divine and uh, it's also a god uh, a fire god and so you can imagine their whole spiritual practice was that made them very alert to the fire element in life with all its, its beauty and its mystery and its danger. Um, so it was for them something sacred and something worthy of wonder and respect and fear also. So the Buddha kind of drew on this and he used this image to make a point. And... Uh, So he delivered this discourse, which is known as the fire sermon, and I'm going to share substantial parts of it this evening. So he said, because everything is on fire, and in what way is everything on fire? The eye is burning, forms are burning, eye consciousness is burning, eye contact is burning, Whatever is experienced as arising from eye contact, whether that experience is pleasant or unpleasant, 
or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that is burning. And how is it burning? It's burning with the fire of greed, with the fire of hate, with the fire of delusion, burning with the fire of aging, sickness and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. That's how I say it's burning. So these words greed, hate and delusion is... uh, the word here is raga, which is a synonym for loba, um, which means greed in its varying forms. Hatred is dosa, which, of course, again, it can you know be it's a spectrum word. All these words are spectrum words. Those ones are kind of we, they're generally easy to get. Somebody asked me recently why we, you hear a lot about greed and hatred, but people don't really explain much what delusion is about. So this moha, is uh, delusion, is really referring to those distortions in our way of seeing things that mean we take things to have some solid, real, lasting essence. So we, we don't see the, the truth of anicca in them. And we take them as capable of producing lasting satisfaction. We don't see the dukkha in them. And we take them as uh, atta, as, or as me or mine, something that's worth clinging to as me or mine, I, me or mine. So we, we just don't notice within these phenomena the three characteristics or the, the nature of suffering and release. And then that whole list of things burning with the fires of ageing, sickness, etc. This is the formula, really, that, it, that means dukkha. So the eye is burning in all these ways. And the ear is burning. Sounds, ear consciousness, ear contact. And whatever is experienced arising from ear contact, pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, is burning. The nose smells. Nose consciousness, nose contact. Whatever is experienced arising from nose contact. The tongue tastes tongue consciousness, tongue contact, and whatever is experienced arising from tongue contact. The body, touch, body consciousness, body contact, whatever is experienced arising from body contact. And, of course, the sixth sense, the mind. The mind, mind objects, mind consciousness, mind contact. Whatever is experienced as arising from mind contact whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, that is burning. How is it burning? It's burning with the fire of greed, raga, with the fire of hate, dosa, with the fire of delusion, moha, burning with the fire of aging, sickness, and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. That's how I say it's burning. So mind objects, of course, refers to thoughts, ideas, feelings, the things that manifest in the conceiving mind, the sixth sense base. So, just how is it to kind of hear all that? And is it something that you've noticed at all? So I thought rather than me give a, a list of uh, elaborating my personal examples, just to throw out some imagined scenarios to you and see where your mind goes with each of these and what happens to your feelings. So you can play along with this. And just notice, is there ease, is there peace in the mind when you imagine these scenarios, is there equanimity or is there some agitation and disruption and what arises? One of the interesting things about talking to you know, a number of you is that to recognise that there are a hundred different worlds happening here. So we have a hundred different responses and of course we have a different response each day probably to many of these things, but just for fun right now. So just thinking in terms of eye contact and eye consciousness. So suppose you're walking outside the front of the building and you see somebody you think is another yogi looking at their iPhone on the front lawn. 
what arises in your mind? Some of these are actually drawn from things I, that uh, I've noticed in the last wee while. <laughs> what about hearing? So you're out there by the notice board and the door to the staff dining room swings open and you hear an uproarious peal of laughter and you hear a voice maybe say a woman's voice saying that's completely ridiculous what might your mind do with that who is it what are they saying do we have an opinion about whether they should be saying that or laughing so much I'd even think they might be talking about something we said or did. (laughs) Or smell. Suppose somebody walks past you in yogi space and you catch this, this fragrance of lavender. Maybe we love lavender, maybe we're allergic to it. Maybe we have beliefs about fragrances in yogi space. Maybe we, our favourite holidays have been in Provence and the <laughs> south of France. <laughs> maybe it reminds us of our grandmother. Or taste. So you sit down to lunch and you take your first mouthful of food and you notice that there's an unexpected hit of spiciness to it. I noticed with chilli food, it's really interesting. I've always loved spicy food, but noticing how actually what's happening in the mouth for me is there's, a, there's this init, initial hit of something stimulating and pleasant and then I realise actually it's, it's an unpleasant burning sensation but in order to get away from the, unperning, the unpleasant burning sensation my uh, response is to take another mouthful and for years I thought wow this is really tasty I love spicy food and I probably still do but just seeing the mechanics of how that... Um, Spice excites, excites the mind and excites the taste buds. That's an interesting thing to investigate. Or touch. You feel the heat of the sun on your face. Where does that take you? In the choices that you make or where you go in your imagination. Or the internal sense of touch, you know, you feel a, a, a weird sensation in your side. How long before you're down at the emergency room? And maybe also to really acknowledge that there are times when these things arise and the mind doesn't really budge with them. And that especially in the depth of retreat, there will be these times. or the mind and mind objects. So these often begin with the memory. So say the, the image of one of those beautiful Halloween lanterns floats across the mind. And maybe there's a thought, oh, that was Halloween. What about Thanksgiving? I wonder what they do for Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> and then the mind starts to think about Thanksgiving. And maybe family or Thanksgiving's past or the politics of Thanksgiving. Or you might remember Halloween and and you might remember, oh, that was the the day that the UK was going to leave the EU. (laughs) (laughs) And in this news-deprived environment... blessedly news-proofed environment. 
what happens there. Or thoughts about the Dharma, you know, even thoughts about the Dharma, they can arise in the mind and lead to a whole raft of proliferation. So the Buddha actually described this process in a sutta called the Honey Ball Sutta, which I think is a nice way to, to, to depict the, the mechanism of what happens. So he says, and this is eye consciousness, but it's the same for all the other sense bases. He says, eye consciousness arises dependent on the eye and sights. The meeting of the three is contact. So this is this weird thing of you have the eye, the forms, eye consciousness and contact. That's how a sight manifests in this way of mapping it or uh, understanding it. And contact conditions feeling, Vedana. And what you feel, you perceive. And what you perceive, you think about. And what you think about, you proliferate. And what you proliferate about leaves you beset by concepts of identity that that emerge from the proliferation of perceptions. Sounds pretty accurate to me. So he says everything is burning, and there are many instances, like we've just seen, in which we can say, Yes, that's true. But it can be a, a bit of a how does it feel to contemplate the suggestion that that's actually true of everything? Because he says that the six sense bases make up the totality of our experience. There's nothing beyond that. And I know that today, you know, there there is an understanding that maybe we have more senses than just the six senses. But the new ones, or the ones that are better kind of identified and isolated by contemporary science, they probably would fit into these drop-down lists under the uh, original six. And we could say, but, you know, this is, this is the fabric of life. And the Buddha says, it's all burning. But just to really notice that what he's saying is that the fire is not in the stuff of life. The fire is in the greed, hatred and delusion that arise out of these contacts. So this is what he's asking us to be vigilant about to be really careful of what's happening in our own mind because that's where we get burned or where we don't. So the eye contact thing, I was going to ask you, what happens when you look in the mirror? So what what are we noticing or attending to when we look at ourselves in the mirror? I'd love to say that when I, I look in the mirror, I'm really just noticing the state of my mind. That's not always my uppermost preoccupation. You know? um. So the, the, one of the things I really like about this sutta is that it normalizes for me the experience of feeling burned. You know, Oh yeah, this really is how it feels to be in contact with samsara and then it's kind of like you know the 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 extremity of what it says is it's like big flashing warning lights it's like one of those trucks that you know beeps and you know i can't remember whether here they say this vehicle is reversing they all say that in england they say attention this vehicle is reversing (laughs) so it's a kind of um warning signal to me and I noticed that because it's a familiar teaching and you may you may experience this too with teachings of the Dharma that have become really familiar to you you find that they pop into your mind at opposite moments sometimes often uncannily so I might be catch myself looking in the mirror and then suddenly the voice say eye contact is burning <laughs> Or uh, I've also, I've, I've shared this in talks before, but uh, this sort of again sticks in my mind as uh, once staying with the bikunis in California and uh, taking them to REI to get some equipment that they needed. And they'd been given donations for this equipment. But if you're a, a nun, you know, that's a big expedition. <laughs> and uh, 
they suggest because they know that I like chanting these things. These are some nuns that I actually used to live with in England before they moved to the States. And so I said, why don't we chant the fire sermon before we go to REI? (laughs) (laughs) So now I actually think, you know, if I'm about to go on a shopping expedition in London or something, sometimes I'll do that to myself beforehand. It's quite helpful. So uh, Rebecca the other morning was talking about practice as requiring a sort of relaxed alertness. And that really spoke to me. And there's something about this sutta maybe when we hear the the part that I've just read that it doesn't feel particularly conducive to relaxed alertness. It feels more like a sort of invitation to hypervigilance, you know. So just to kind of, if that arises for you, to just wait a moment, because this is only half of the sutta. <laughs> There's good news as well as bad news, isn't it? But to, when it talks about all these things which really make up the entirety of our experience, the stuff of life, it, this is just the potential fuel for this uh, taking over or taking off of greed, hatred and delusion. The fuel is this contact at the six sense doors. And what arises is there's contact and then just as I I read in that quotation from the Honeyball Sutta, there's Vedana that arises dependent on the contact and then that takes us down this chain of tanha, of craving an upadana, clinging, and then dukkha. And the interesting thing about this imagery is that this word upadana, which is the word that we translate as clinging, the Pali word also means fuel and sustenance. And so the Buddha was kind of using language that played on this imagery of fire, And the way that they understood the physics of fire at that time was that the fire, there's this fire element that clings to fuel and feeds on it. And the way that fire is extinguished is that it, it's, it gets unbound from the fuel. It, it unclings from the fuel. And guess what the word is for unbinding? Yeah, many of you know this. It's nibbana. So nibbana actually means to unbind and to grow cool. So there's an opportunity here. So what what do we need to do? So the the second half of the sutta, the Buddha continues, when a well-taught noble disciple really sees this, sees how everything is burning, they become disenchanted with the eye. They become disenchanted with forms. They become disenchanted with eye consciousness, disenchanted with eye contact, disenchanted with any experience born of eye contact, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neither. And the same through the other senses, up to the mind. They become disenchanted with the mind, disenchanted with mind objects, disenchanted with mind consciousness, disenchanted with mind contact, disenchanted with all experience born of mind contact, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neither. This word disenchanted, the Pali is nibindati, or the noun is nibida, disenchantment. It's often um, kind of traditionally or uh, in earlier translations, translated as weariness or revulsion or disgust, which is a little bit, I think, misleading or a bit strong. And so the word, the word is derived apparently from a prefix nis, which means without, and a, a root vindati, which means to find. And so literally it means something like without finding, the word disgust is a bit intense, but actually, if you look at the 
root meaning of disgust in English, it means losing the taste for something. And actually practice in a way is about re-educating our tastes towards more genuine forms of happiness. But I really, li- I really like the, the translation disenchanted because it implies kind of falling out of, from under the spell of something. It's like we end, we end an infatuation with something. And I imagine that you've also had moments of being burned, but you've also had many moments of experiencing this too, the taste of the mind letting go. And the thing about this, what the Buddha is saying, is there's nothing that you have to do. You just have to see clearly what's going on. And as we've said many times, is that mindfulness collects the data and then wisdom sees and lets go. And so that's why almost why we elevate the teachings on mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta in that way, because that really gives us a really um, clear method by which to see processes unfolding. And then these teachings like the fire sermon or the uh, teaching on the Four Noble Truths, they give us the kind of understanding uh, to support wisdom. But we can, we can also take a sutta like this as a practice instruction. It's an invitation to experiment with practicing a particular way of seeing, with seeing the burning nature of these things. And so the sutta goes through, it recites all, this, all these lists of different ways of experiencing through the sense doors again. And repeats this word, becomes disenchanted. And so every single moment of experience that arises, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neither, actually offers us this opportunity for liberation, for unbinding. And I like that this word nibindati, although it has a different root from the word nibbana, sounds very much like the nibbana. And so if I listen to or recite this teaching, it's like it's a reminder that every moment is a gateway to nibbana, right in the middle of this. And it reminds me of a couple of lines from another sutta that I I really like. This is a, um, a sutta called the, the Root of All Things. And it says, Vimuti sara sabe dhamma. Yielding deliverance as essence are all things. Sabe dhamma. Nibbana pariyosana sabe dhamma. Terminating in nibbana are all things. There's nothing in our experience that doesn't uh, have this potential to yield deliverance and to open into Nibbāna. And so the Buddha concludes, when a well-taught noble disciple experiences disenchantment, they become dispassionate. Through dispassion they're liberated, and with this liberation comes the knowledge that birth is over, rebirth is over. The spiritual life has been lived. What had to be done has been done, and there's nothing more than this. Nothing more to be discovered, nothing more to be done. Sometimes I think if we, if we um, take this on board, it can feel a little paralyzing. Like, I don't want to move or act because I'm going to get burned, you know, if I engage with anything. But of course, there are there are some vedana, some feelings, some impressions, some contacts that need to be responded to, and there are some impulses that we have that are wholesome and worth following, and some ideas that are really worth contemplating and pursuing. So it can't really be implying or saying that. And this was actually an issue that the Buddha kind of responded to himself. So here's something from the. Ud- Udana, which is another um, book in the Pali Canon, where the Buddha is more sort of verse responses to things, but this is also one of the um, 
really early books, so probably something very close to what the Buddha actually said. This is a translation from Tanisara Bhikkhu. said, The world is burning. Afflicted by contact, it calls disease a self. By whatever means it supposes anything, it becomes otherwise than that. It's like anything we conceive of. You know, it slips away from us, it manifests as something else. Becoming otherwise, the world is attached to becoming, afflicted by becoming, and yet delights in that very becoming. Where there's delight, there is fear. What one fears is stressful. This holy life is lived for the abandoning of becoming. And then he goes on to say, Whatever contemplatives or Brahmins say that liberation from becoming is by means of becoming, all of them are not released from becoming, I say. And whatever contemplatives or Brahmins say that escape from becoming is by means of non-becoming, all of them have not escaped from becoming, I say. All levels of becoming anywhere in any way are inconstant, stressful and subject to change. Seeing this as it's come to be with right discernment, one abandons craving for becoming and doesn't delight in non-becoming. So rather than kind of, um, well, Tanisara Bhikkhu explains, rather than focus on whether one wants to take the experience arising in the moment of direction, in the direction of becoming or non-becoming to go into it or to get rid of it or deny it this, the, the task is really simply to develop dispassion for what has come to be and that leaves freedom for an appropriate response to arise So how do, we, how do we practice while this dispassion is still developing? Because I think often we've already, we find that we've already caught fire. And this is another place where the suttas also use the analogy of fire. So to really learn through this process of mindful observation that we're practicing, what feeds the fire more and what causes it to die down. So one of the important things, one of the tools we have at our disposal is the tool of wise attention. And the classic example, and I will say it again because uh, I know that it arises uh, for us on retreat, is you might find yourself having lustful thoughts based on a memory or a fantasy or on the sight of somebody. And the teaching is that when we notice something like this arising, then what we can do is we can attend to the unlovely aspects of the desired thing, whether it's a person or you know, any, anything else. So we can attend to what's unlovely. We can attend to, we can think about, reflect on the drawbacks of wanting, of craving, of clinging, we can remove our attention to something else. And if we conversely, we find ourselves in an aversion attack, you know, we can attend to the good qualities or the non-aversion making qualities of the thing or the per- of the thing or the person that's given rise to that. We can reflect on the drawbacks of aversion tasting its unpleasantness. We can move our attention somewhere else. And of course that takes mindfulness and determination. Sometimes I think it feels like we're, we're frying up in the middle of it. Yeah. The sense that oh, a dukkha is just going to entirely combust me before I can extinguish any flames. Yeah. So I've had times like that in practice where you just you must have to just sweat it out That's, and it's just heat you could reflect 
But it's also okay to ask for help, you know, if we're really combusting. And asking for help is not a failure. It's actually a skillful means that the Buddha recommended. Sila, ethics, our commitment to non-harming. I was thinking this is like a fire break, isn't it? It's that, that we, we might have some fire going on, but the fire break of Sila protects us and one another from serious damage. And we can also practice becoming more skilled at not catching fire and by guarding the sense doors with mindfulness. We don't always have to look where we feel the impulse to look, for example. There's the teaching of the six animals where the senses are compared to six animals and one way to protect ourselves from them going on a rampage is to really establish mindfulness in the body. And this is like tying the animals to a post and planting the post firmly in the ground. This invitation to really stay here, not get pulled away. Or the advice to Bahia that many of us know and love. The Buddha says, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself. And when for you there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. In other words, the the fires of greed, hatred and delusion that arises and the, the sense that arises with them of being a a separately existing self is not going to ignite. The way we often talk about this is just this practice of sights being known, sound being known, tastes being known, smell being known, sensations being known, thoughts being known, oatmeal being known, prunes being known. I know that breakfast people often remind us of this attitude on their blackboard in there. Another thing we can do to reduce our flammability is really what Winnie was talking about last night, this cultivating wholesome states of mind. Contentment, patience, generosity, kindness, reflecting on our own goodness. So we, we're kind of less flammable when we're... Uh, when we're in one of these states of mind. It's kind of like developing them is kind of like um, fireproofing ourselves with protective clothing or spraying ourselves with water, saturating ourselves with water so we can't burn. And I was thinking about samadhi and collectedness, stability of mind, and it's interesting that the similes that the Buddha uses for developing stability of mind a lot about soaking with water so the simile of the the bath salts where um, the settling of the body into or the body and the mind into into um, collectedness is like the bathman um, sprinkling the ball of soap powder with water and kneading it so that there's no part of it that is not saturated with water penetrated, permeated, saturated with water. And then the similes of the lotuses in the lake. So as the mind becomes more collected, it's like being a lotus that's submerged in a lake so that there's no part of it that is left unpermeated by the cool, refreshing water of the lake. 
And so as we develop more stability and collectedness, we're also making ourselves a little less flammable. And if we spend time in a, in a state of collectedness in our meditation, then when we emerge from this lake, it's like the, uh, the moisture will protect us, this collectedness will protect us. So this is a really good and useful thing to cultivate. But you also can't hide in the lake all the time. <laughs> you know? we, can't, we don't want to make a goal of our practice to kind of become a permanent scuba diver. <laughs> it's not really... You know, it would be a little restricting. So really we do ultimately have to turn to wisdom to put out these kinds of fires. So we can't uh, solve things by withdrawing from contacts. And this again is like, you know, the solution is not in deciding, okay, I'm just not going to become anything. I'm not going to contact experience. So we're really not in control. Of course, and it's really helpful, and this is why we, one of the reasons for coming on retreat is to simplify the numbers of contacts we're receiving. And we can do things on retreat, like you know, maybe once becoming very sensitive and choosing some to sit some of the time in our rooms, for example. But remember, a few weeks ago, just as I was feeling like I could hear the ants walking around and that it would be a good idea to practice in my room. It was the afternoon where the fire alarm went off. <laughs> Which was a profoundly unpleasant experience. You know. So life is ever unpredictable. And retreat, especially the irritants of unpredictability, they can be quite, quite strong. And then, of course, there's a whole world out there. And as the Buddha said, everything is on fire. And this is kind of becoming a commonplace assertion in the world out there, for good reason. And one of the things that's often said when we people uh, draw attention to the fact that the world is on fire it's heating up and beset with problems, is that business as usual is not an option. In fact, she's seen that ascribed, that quote ascribed to the Dalai Lama. And it's true that business as usual is not an option if we want our planet to be livable. But it's also true that if we really want to realize the freedom that the Buddha is offering us, Business as usual can't really be our option, can it? So actually what's needed is a different sort of fire. I sort of want to draw attention to two kinds of fire. There's the fire of greed, hatred and delusion that, you know, burns us up. But there's also the fire of samvega or spiritual urgency, which Jung talked a bit about when he talked about virya, I think. And sometimes this, this, this um, invitation to a life of being dispassionate or disenchanted that's implied in this teaching like the fire sermon, it, it doesn't kind of sit quite right with us. Like for me, I, I, as a dispassionate life, really, I feel like something's missing. Passion is often felt to be a good thing. And of course, this is, depends how we use passion and what we pour it into. But I think there's space in our practice for a fire that combats the fire. Andrea talked about, some time ago, she talked about the refrain in the Satipatthana Sutta where it talks about abiding Atapi Sampajano Satima, ardent, clearly knowing and mindful. 
and how she, that word ardent didn't really do it for her. So just to, for me, I, I beg to differ. <laughs> it comes from the Latin word ardio, which is I burn. And that, I find that quite inspiring. But it also talks about this diligent, uh, ardent, clearly knowing and mindful and at the same time putting aside delighting and grieving for the world, which implies some equanimity. So there's this kind of invitation to an equanimous kind of burning. And this is really what we need in our practice. We need a, a steady, controlled burn. If we get greedy and we thought we have this, we have our, our kind of surges and our crashes in the course of our practice. Uh, we learn from this. We learn. So I, I, I do think there's a, a space and a place for an equanimous kind of burning and passion here. This alert relaxation. And that's really the best way, the best place from which to free ourselves and also to be as effective as we can uh, in the place where we're situated in the world to contribute to the, to the network of life. So I think it's useful to acknowledge, to recognize these two kinds of fire and to uh, learn to work skillfully with them. So I just want to end by sharing a couple of the poems from the uh, Elder Nuns, this beautiful rendition of Matty's. And this is, this is one that uh, Carol read earlier, a very well-known one. Patachara, who was uh, one of the, the nuns who had ex- suffered extreme hardship, uh, loss of uh, everyone and everything. This is what she says. Farmers turn up the soil, plant seeds and wait. All by itself, water pours down from the sky and turns earth into food. After all these years sleeping on the ground, waking before dawn and begging for every meal, where's my harvest? Late one evening, I was washing my feet after another long day of sitting and walking. The water poured over my feet and onto the ground. I let my mind go, and it flowed downhill with the water towards my little hut. I went inside, sat on the bed, and lowered the wick of the lamp. All by itself, the flame went out. And then this is from Uttara, who was a student of hers, another of the enlightened nuns. I asked Patachara, what is the path? Patachara said, Just see all thoughts, words and actions arising by themselves, not from some imaginary point within. I only partly understood, but I took a seat. As the sun was setting, I saw the endless line of one thing leading to another that had brought me to the cushion that night. As the moon was coming up, 
I saw the arising and passing away of all things in every direction. As dawn was breaking, wisdom rose in the east and set fire to the long dark night. But don't take my word for it. Set fire to the darkness within. I promise it's like nothing you've ever seen. Just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Thank you again for your practice. And uh, it's time for some walking and chanting at nine for those who like it.